Let me pray and we'll get underway. Father, we thank you for this morning, for the sun being out, the temperature being uh, bearable, and everybody that's here being firmly committed in their hearts that the right place to be on Sunday morning is church and orchestrating their lives in such a way that they're able to be here and to worship you. We thank you that you've made us people who believe what you've said about yourself, that you are worthy to be praised and adored. We thank you that we are people who you have caused to have genuine faith. And we believe that we've been cleansed of sin, um, redeemed from bondage, and we're being drawn with cords of love eventually into your very presence where we will be perfect as you are perfect. In the meantime, we gather here Sunday by Sunday. We seek to encourage one another um, through our fellowship and through the study of your word and through our corporate worship. I just give you thanks and praise that there are so many who are willing to get up and show up week after week. Lord, we want to pray this morning as we look into this um, epistle that you would help us to make application carefully, that we wouldn't derive the wrong thing from your word as we, we can so easily do. We ask that you guide our thoughts, um, be with my mouth, help me to say things that are edifying and, and build up the church. And then we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would use this word to move in the hearts of all of us, um, but particularly in, in the hearts of those who feel far off, who feel like uh, maybe their faith is failing, um, we, we just beg you that a text like this would never seek to discourage anybody from um, enthusiastically pursuing a relationship with you as you have made it so clear that you have enthusiastically pursued one with us. And be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen. amen. <clears throat> Over the last couple of weeks, <coughs> we've made our way through the first half of James chapter 2, and basically, here's what we've seen, overarching theme. James identifies that the culture at the time when he was writing this anyway um, was a culture where the rich were most likely the ones who would persecute the church. Um, and I've tried to tease out the, the reason for that is because in a, in a culture where there's no middle class, as it would have been the case in James's day, um, of necessity, what you have are the extremely rich ruling over and lording over the extremely poor. So this creates a natural tendency among all people to look for ways to ingratiate themselves to those who had wealth. So if you were wealthy, you could weaponize the law You could subjugate the poor, and you could do it with a certain amount of impunity. You were kind of untouchable. So it would be understandable that the church might need to hear an exhortation along the lines of, don't favor the wealthy just because they're wealthy. 
This is a church. It's not a community center. If you were part of the eldership of a church in those days, the pragmatic thing to do, if someone wealthy showed up on a Lord's Day, the pragmatic thing to do would be show them extra regard in hopes that you could curry some favor with them. You'll avoid persecution this way. Um, You'll probably make life generally easier for the whole body. So immediately, all of you, along with me, identified that this is not something which would ever happen here. Right? We, I mean, we've read this before. So we're committed to never showing special attention to someone just because they're wealthy. Of course we won't do that. James says it clear as day, don't do that. So what we have to do is broaden the scope beyond James's given illustration in order to understand the principle that's at work. So we looked at a different question last week with an eye toward doing that. The question is this. Why do I feel the need <clears throat> to ingratiate myself to anyone? Why do we feel the need to ingratiate ourselves to anyone? What is it about the human condition that produces in us a desire to have the approval of other people? Forget about whether or not they're rich. And then to tease out the answer, I took us back to our gospel fluency series that we did a little over a year ago, and and we were reminded that because everything is broken by sin, and we can categorize everything three ways. The divine relationship is broken by sin. Human relationships are broken by sin. And then creation is broken by sin. Things just don't, in creation, work the way that they were originally designed. Now, the manifestation of that brokenness is that all of us experience within certain negative emotions. And I think the most common are fear, shame, and guilt. So we get about the business as a species of trying to bandage those icky feelings. We don't like them, so we try to fix as best we can what's broken so that we don't have to feel those things anymore. And I think one of the most regularly used bandages is this one. If I can just get the approval of other people, I'll feel better. And the the way it works is this. We think the approval of other people will guard me from what frightens me, cover what makes me feel ashamed, and undo what makes me guilty. I don't think we put it in those stark terms when we naturally move into this mode of behavior. And by the way, I really do believe it's a natural mode of behavior. There is something about the way society all over the planet, the way societies can construct themselves where you are better off if you're part of the group and you're generally worse off if you're segregated, if you're off on your own doing your own thing. In all cultures, this has proven to be the case. So it's a natural instinct of the human heart to want to fit in and have the cooperation and the benefit of other people's companionship. 
This, in combination with the desire to bandage what's broken because of the fall, is the reason I think a church might drift in the direction of showing personal favoritism and judging with evil motives. This is why some churches, and I'm not up here to name names, um, but there's a Methodist church in town, not this one, but in the Omaha metro area, um, that a, a dear friend of mine from years past works for, and they have so shaved off the rough edges of the gospel as to not even resemble a church anymore. So, like, we take positions as, as evangelical Christians on marriage, on baby murder, on sexual immorality, on government policy that we cannot possibly defend with an open Bible. The reason that we do it is we hope to gain favor from the world around us, and it tends to work. Why would the world persecute a church that's just echoing her own voice? Well, that church sounds just like we do. They're all about uh, infidelity and fornication. And, and drug abuse. And they don't take a particularly firm stance against infanticide. Why should the world persecute that church? The problem is the bandage of the approval of others doesn't actually fix what's broken. And remember, what's broken is the divine relationship, human relationships, and then all of creation to a certain extent is broken. So if every preacher in the world tells you you're wonderful, but you're going through life separated from God, not believing in Jesus Christ, and then you die and face judgment, guess what the opinion of every preacher in the world amounts to in that moment? Nothing. Because God will say, depart from me. I never knew you. It doesn't fix human relationships because having the approval of one person usually earns you the ire of another person. You can't please everybody. Anyone over the age of 30 is acquainted with that blessing, right? Oh, I finally made them happy. Now they're mad at me. <laughs> it doesn't fix what's broken in creation. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again because of the limits of modern medicine. So if you have the approval of the whole world, you can still fall down the stairs. You can still get cancer. You can still throw a clot. It doesn't fit. You could get a parasite. You can get struck by lightning. There's things that are just broken that having approval from other people doesn't actually fix. But we're applying this tendency to want approval to the church. Because when you get a group of people together... And let's just say for the sake of discussion, the group of people individually seek the approval of others. What's going to happen to them as a group? They're going to seek the approval of others. There will be this <coughs> plague on that congregation of constantly moving in the direction of gaining whatever approval they can. So the whole organism tends to move that direction, usually under the guidance of her chosen leaders, where power is centered, the ship is steered toward a goal of, of growing numerically, financially, and more influential politically. 
I'm not saying absolutely, I'm saying usually. If you want to identify a church that is consumed with having the approval of the culture around her, here are her interests. We need more people, we need more money, and we need more influence. It's reflected in her budget, it'll be reflected in the preaching ministry, and it will be reflected in what she does or doesn't do in the community. So James turns his attention then to the royal law of the scripture. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. When he did that, it was clear to us that he was making sure we understood that showing personal favoritism, being judges with evil motives, here's what he's trying to say. If you do that, if you're a judge with evil motives and you show personal favor, you're guilty of the whole law. All of it. It's just as bad as murder, adultery, stealing, and bearing false witnesses. So I thought, well, what we should do here is go be reminded of who our neighbor is. Because like the man in Luke 10, I mean, I can't help it. The question that comes to mind is, yeah, but who am I supposed to be loving? We saw the so-called Good Samaritan, and from it we discerned the following. Whomever in my life most needs mercy is my neighbor. And Jesus has commanded us to love our neighbors. The real problem here is simple, okay? Tune back in for just a minute if you can. Here's the problem. The person in my life who most needs mercy from me is not likely the person from whom I have the most to gain if I have their approval. This is the disconnect. That isn't where I want to direct my time and energy. That isn't where I want to spend my resources. And that isn't the person who I want to get to love me. The principle then is not don't be nice to rich people. The principle is show mercy to the most needy. And the warning is this. If you are preferring the powerful in an attempt to protect yourself and neglecting mercy toward the needy, you're guilty of the whole law. If we want to apply this to the larger church, The warning then is this. When neighbor loving is replaced with a priority of protecting the organism's nucleus by favoring the rich, the influential, and the powerful, that church is guilty of violating the law of the gospel. Which brought us to verse 12. Speak and act like people who are to be judged by the gospel. Speak and act like people who have been shown mercy. Speak and act like people who have been justified by grace. How do we know that it's true that mercy triumphs over judgment? How do we know that mercy triumphs over judgment? Well, If Jesus wanted to, he could have called down a legion of angels and destroyed all of those who were crucifying him and fully vindicated himself. That would have been judgment. Instead, he was held on that cross by his love for you and now sits at the right hand of God victorious over 
your sin, and all that is broken by the fall. The divine relationship is restored. Human relationships can be restored. And creation ultimately will be restored. That brings us to 2.14. All right, not bad. It's a decent review. <clears throat> what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you, I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute fulfilled by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. <clears throat> I'm going to move quickly because I think enough ink has been spilled on enough pages over this text that we probably don't need a deep dive. If I'm wrong, that will reveal itself through the course of this sermon. And then after Christmas, we will come back and spend three months just on this passage. But I think I'm right. I'm tempted to tell you how I will know if I'm not right, but that would be manipulative. <laughs> True faith is active. Ah, I might have been wrong. True faith is active. Okay. What that means is that if you hear a convicting truth, two things need to happen if you have faith, okay? You hear a convicting truth, you read a convicting truth. First, there's repentance. Second, there's movement. Amen. Okay. <clears throat> False faith is inactive. False faith is inactive. What that means is folks who do not repent and do not move do not have faith. The illustration of the brother or sister poorly clothed and hungry is not exclusively prescriptive. Here's what I mean by that. <clears throat> James isn't saying... Go make sure everyone who is starving and cold has food and clothing in order to be justified. 
He is not setting you on a course of uh, care for homeless people so that God will love you. All right. It's an example. And here's what he's turning the light on by giving this example. Does it do any good to tell somebody who is cold and hungry to be warm and filled? Looks like most of you think no. <clears throat> Similarly, does it do any good to quote the whole Bible and never do anything that it says to do? That's the example. How do we know this is true? <clears throat> well, in Mark 5, they're uh, in the boats going across the, the Sea of Galilee, and they come to the country of the Gerasenes. And Jesus steps out of the boat, and immediately there met him on the shore, out of the tombs, a man of an unclean spirit. Now, it turns out this man of an unclean spirit actually had multiple unclean spirits. They identified themselves as legion and ultimately get sent into some pigs and go drown themselves in the sea. <clears throat> but here's what happens. They see Jesus from afar and induce the man to run and fall down before him, crying out with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Okay. Did those demons know who Jesus was? <laughs> Look at verse 19, James 2. Did those demons know who Jesus was? All right, it's not a trick question. <clears throat> True faith is active. It's looking bad for January, I'm not going <laughs> to lie to you guys. There is repentance and movement in the spiritual life of someone who has faith in Jesus Christ. Listen, look, everybody look right at me. I did not say there is repentance and perfection in the life of somebody who has faith in Jesus Christ. I said there is repentance and movement. The absence of repentance in a church body may not be very easy to see, but the absence of movement will be obvious. More on that to come. Two examples. <clears throat> Excuse me. Abraham and Rahab. Genesis 15, if you want to turn there, as though you don't believe me, you're more than welcome to. Genesis 15, 5, God brings Abraham outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. And then he said to Abraham, so shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God. Abraham believed God. That means Abraham had confidence in what God said. It means he understood that what God said was true. Right? Yeah. Okay. Seven chapters later, Genesis 22, verse 1. <clears throat> After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham! 
And he said, here I am. God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. Offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son, Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go up there and worship and come again to you. <clears throat> Abraham took the, word of the, the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, and they went, both of them, together. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order to, I'm sorry, laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. This is not prescriptive. These events occurred in the life of Abraham in order for a picture to be drawn for us to look at. Okay. <clears throat> what God ultimately preserved Isaac from, he did not preserve Jesus from. Abraham did not prove anything to God by this trip to Mount Moriah, but he learned something about himself. It is critical that we understand chronologically Genesis 22 comes after Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, Abraham believes God and it's credited to him as righteousness. In 22, he obeys God and does what God called him to do. Abraham believed, then he obeyed. You got it? What was his repentance? Hard to see, but here's what we know. Repentance always comes with belief because you, don't, you, you didn't believe before you did, and now you do believe, so that's repentance. You changed your mind. You changed direction. Something had to change. What was the repentance in Abraham's case? Hard to see. Not sure, but what was the movement Obvious, a nine-mile trek up Mount Moriah. Every step more difficult than the one before if you're Abraham knowing what's coming next. That was the movement. I'm so glad Abraham is given 
as an example because like Abraham, I sometimes feel called by God to do things that don't make any sense from a human perspective. Like Abraham, I sometimes find myself moving in, a, in obedience to God against every fiber of my human nature. And like Abraham, I sometimes find myself drawing the knife, as it were, while praying that God will provide another way. And hoping that he does. When you discipline your kids, when you tell the truth at work, when you give out of your own poverty, your faith is justified. Your faith is confirmed. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham obeyed God, and his faith was justified, proven, and authenticated. Second example, Rahab, Joshua 2, verse 1. <clears throat> Man, the dry air is killing me. Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. They went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. The king of Jericho sent to Rahab saying, bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. The woman who had taken the two men and hidden them, she said, true. The men came to me, but I didn't know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I don't know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, and you'll overtake them. But in reality, she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with stalks of flax that she had laid in, in order on the roof. So the men pursued after the Israelites on the way to Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. A Canaanite temple prostitute is not, in our imaginations, a likely candidate for a heroine of the faith. Right? <clears throat> especially one that lies in the middle of her so-called heroic act. We want a much cleaner hero. Here's what we know from these verses. Verse 11 in Joshua 2, Rahab says this, The Lord, your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. This is what we call in theology exclusive language. She is saying something is true of Yahweh that isn't true of any other deity. Which, in fact, because of what she says, means that there is no other deity. Okay. Rahab describes accurately God as the Lord. 
What was the repentance? Well, obviously she stopped believing in Dagon, Baal, Ashtaroth, or whatever other demons the Canaanites were worshiping and believed God. That was her repentance, right? What was the movement? She hid the spies. And she uses covenant language to describe God and what she's hoping these spies' actions will be towards her. The word that she uses in verse 12, which I didn't read, twice is that word chesed, steadfast love, covenant faithfulness. The movement was she eventually hangs a scarlet cord from her window so that when Israel destroys Jericho, she and her household are preserved. She becomes the mother of Boaz and is listed in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. That's the movement. I'm so glad James gave us Rahab as well as Abraham because Rahab, like me, was a Gentile. In fact, she's the first listed Gentile convert in all of biblical history. Rahab, like me, was involved in vile and contemptible activities before she came to saving knowledge of God. Rahab, like me, gives kind of pitiful evidence of her faith when compared to Abraham. You got Abraham taking the only thing he ever wanted, his son, up Mount Moriah, to obey God and sacrifice him. You can barely get me to part with my iPad. I'm so glad Rahab is in here lying her way through her obedience because it proves that God is happy with a little faith. And her movement justifies her faith, proves her faith. You know what my favorite thing she did is? She showed mercy to those who most needed it. So for you individually, what does repentance look like? I don't know, because I don't know what you're guilty of or what you're guilty over. So repentance is going to be harder to see until it produces action. 2 Corinthians 7 is what Paul says about the church of Corinth. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, I'm not happy. When I get up here and preach and it looks like you've just been kicked in the stomach, it doesn't make me happy like because I'm into people feeling like that. It makes me happy because there's a chance, like the church at Corinth, you've been grieved unto repentance. Maybe you'll be moved toward a godly grief. Verse 10 says, For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So as a church, what does repentance look like? Hard to say, right? Depends on what we're guilty of as an organization. And in our case, it might very well be disorganization that we're guilty of. But when repentance produces movement, now you can see it. Now you can see the faith of that church. 
Does she justify her faith with her words? Be warm and filled. We have the right doctrine. We're upholding the truth no matter what. Or does she justify her faith with her actions? Here is food for the needy. Here is clothing for the needy. Here is help for the helpless. Here's free counseling for the broken. Here is a group of people who will welcome you no matter how much money you make of you. You can see a changed heart when action consistent with the heart of Jesus is being produced. Now listen, this is where I'll get myself into trouble, so you'll want to really pay attention. In this whole discourse, the apostle does not show what justifies, but shows who is justified. Not what faith does, but what faith is. The context does not show that faith without works doesn't justify. The context does not show that faith without works fails to justify, but that assent without works is not faith. Intellectual apprehension of biblical truths does not equal a changed heart. That's what James is trying to show us. The justification that he speaks about has not so much to do with the person as it does with the faith. Their faith is justified by their works, demonstrated by their works, shown by their works, proven by their works. Faith is vindicated of hypocrisy and emptiness by the actions which flow from it. Mm -hmm. Here's us as a church in 2000 and almost 23, about to enter the Advent season. My favorite. I mean, I shouldn't be a pastor because I like Christmas more than Easter. And we're going to see food drives and we're going to see little news snippets about things that are going on at the homeless shelter. And we're going to see opportunities to come alongside brothers and sisters and try to encourage and help them. Oh, God, help us if we look at people who are destitute and just feel compassion for them and do nothing else. The world is filled with philanthropists that easily do more than the church by and large. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying we should be in competition with Warren Buffett, but I'm saying no one should be able to deny that Springfield Baptist Church has a heart for her community and wants to bless those who need it most. James is identifying the despicable nature of those who want to be thought of as spiritual, charitable, and godly without actually being spiritual, charitable, and godly. And he does it by showing us two people who were spiritual, charitable, and godly. And thank 
heaven. He gave us both ends of the spectrum. Because I'm guessing most of us are closer to the Rahab side of things than the Abraham side of things. Now, James could have said, by faith, Abraham offered up his own wife whenever the king of Egypt got the hots for her and pretended like she was his sister. Like, he had his failures too, right? He had feet of clay. Wasn't the greatest man that ever lived. But what James has done very kindly and very beautifully and very eloquently is set before us two examples of what it looks like to have your faith produce action and then call us individually and then corporately to imitate the faith of Abraham and the faith of Rahab or wherever in that spectrum we end up. Let's be a church that does stuff where there's repentance and movement. The world can't see our repentance. They can see what we're doing. And that's how we'll impact the culture around us. Amen? Amen.